I mentioned different parts at times of our worship. One, to just kind of remind us and always be sharing with us why we do what we do. And it helps us with not only prayer and preparation, but I hope it aids us to worship. One of the things I do want to mention is when we give the invitation or the opportunity for the children to go for their time, that that really is a time of worship training for them. That is not a time of entertainment. That is not a time for them to to just go play. They're learning about worship. In fact, we have elders teaching that time, so they learn what the meaning of the call to worship is and the point of confession and the point of being renewed. What the choir just did for us was leading us in a time of renewal. I mean, I love the fact that Carl is choosing Psalms. That was, for those of you who may not know, that was Psalm 27. The Lord is the strength of my life. Part of me goes, amen. That's what we need to hear. Let's go home and eat lunch, right? It's Memorial Day weekend. Now I still have a sermon prepared, so we close the doors. You're stuck here. But think about that. Everything we do is for a reason and for a purpose. We try to have our liturgy very well thought out that it would lead us to Christ. So pray for our children. They are extremely important. What we are doing in their lives is very important as we are looking to share the doctrines of our holy religion, our faith. Kind of what we all took a vow to assist parents. Remember when they were baptized? Go back to that. We take that vow that we will come alongside, that we will help. This is one of the tangible ways that we can do that. Now, God has called us to continue to worship him. This is not just a teaching time. This is not just a time where I pass on information to you. This is a time where the Lord speaks to me as much as he speaks to you through his word. And we are called to submit and surrender our hearts to his word and to seek to have our lives conformed to the beauty and glory of his word. Let's pray and ask God to give us a spirit for this time. Lord, in doing this and praying, we acknowledge that apart from you, there is no good thing within us. So if we are even assuming that we can understand what might seem to us to be basic information, we will not see the meaning and the application and the exposition of the text without your Spirit guiding us into the truth, pressing the truth home to our lives. And then as Paul wrote, the Word of God, not only is it inspired and inerrant, but it's useful. That means every Word of God is for application, So may we learn by your Spirit how to apply the Word. It's useful to teach us. It's useful to change the direction, to correct us where we're off base. It confronts us, it rebukes us, and it trains us for every good work. And so, Lord, I pray that you would reach down and reach out and teach us by your Spirit through your Word now in Jesus' name. Amen. If you're able, I ask you to stand one more time for the reading of God's Word. This morning we're looking at 1 Chronicles chapter 29, beginning at verse 10, and I'll read down to verse 20. Therefore David blessed the Lord in the presence of all the assembly, and David said, Blessed are you, O Lord, the God of Israel, our Father, forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty, for all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. Both riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all. In your hand are power and might, and in your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. And now we thank you, our God, and praise your glorious name. But who am I, and what is my people, that we should be able thus to offer willingly? 
for all things come from you, and of your own have we given you. For we are strangers before you, and sojourners, as all our fathers were. Our days on the earth are like a shadow, and there is no abiding. O Lord, our God, all this abundance that we have provided for building you a house for your holy name comes from your hand and is all your own. I know, my God, that you test the heart and have pleasure in uprightness. In the uprightness of my heart, I have freely offered all these things, and now I have seen your people who are present here offering freely and joyously to you. O Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, our fathers, keep forever such purposes and thoughts in the hearts of your people and direct their hearts towards you. Grant to Solomon, my son, a whole heart that he may keep your commandments, your testimonies, and your statutes, performing all and that he may build the palace for which I have made provision. Then David said to all the assembly, Bless the Lord your God. And all the assembly blessed the Lord, the God of their fathers, and bowed their heads and paid homage to the Lord and to the King. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Well, we've been spending the last seven weeks, kind of a brief sermon series, looking at the Lord's Prayer. And the goal has been to cultivate, kind of a practical series, in a sense, how to cultivate our prayer life. In fact, one of the hopes, I have to admit, one of the aims and hopes, don't tell me if you are or aren't doing it, I don't necessarily want to be discouraged, is that it would give you a little bit of a framework of how to pray. That in a sense, you could take each petition, each clause of the prayer, and it gives a theme. So it begins with the worship of the Father. It starts with the foundation of who is the Father, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. All prayer, all communion that we cultivate with God begins with worship. And then we look at the kingdom of the Father that moved from worship, our, the longing, I pray the longing of our heart, is that we want his kingdom to come, his rule and reign to be found on earth, and that his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus himself prayed that his very food his nourishment, his sustenance, that which fed his own heart was doing the will of God and to finish his work. Then, of course, looking at the gracious provision of the Father, the fact that he prays for daily bread, and then he looks at the grace of the Father and that we are to be a gracious community, praying for God's forgiveness as we forgive those, as we are merciful and welcoming and gracious to others. We are seeking God's grace in our lives. And then, of course, as we looked at last week, we pray to not be led into the time of trial or the tribulation, but instead to be delivered to, as we looked at, to conquer evil with good. Paul wrote to the Romans, overcome, don't be overcome by evil. We want to be delivered from evil, but don't, be, don't wallow in it, don't be overcome, but overcome it with our witness. Overcome it with good. Now, this morning, we are finishing our study of the Lord's Prayer. And one of the things I would encourage you to do very practically in your prayer life is take the Lord's Prayer, you can do this daily, and paraphrase the petitions of it. It's a way of praying the Scripture back to God. And this morning we're looking at the final clause of the prayer, for thine, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. And I wonder if you notice something. See, we're studying a clause that in our recital of the prayer, did you notice you don't find it in the text of Matthew chapter 6, the Sermon on the Mount? Or maybe you got curious and you went, okay, Matthew forgot it. Let's figure out what's going on over here. Luke has a version of it. You look at Luke 11 and you find it's not there. 
what's going on? Well, it's actually quite simple. See, this concluding doxology does not appear in the oldest or best manuscripts of either Matthew or Luke. But as we will see, it's a very scriptural, it's a very biblical, we're praying God's word back to him. And so in the liturgy, in the worship of the early church, and you can look at documents of the early church to verify this, to see this, it was used early in the church's history in the liturgy of the church. And so when you got later on in the history of the church, it was added in later manuscripts. And it certainly is biblical. As a matter of fact, perhaps nowhere clearer and more explicit is it listed than in this particular passage of Scripture, 1 Chronicles chapter 29. As a matter of fact, the doxology is found right there in verse 11. If you look at verse 11, it says, Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory. And then just a few, a little bit later, it says, Yours is the kingdom. So right there, David, in the context of worship, and the context of prayer, gathering the whole assembly before him, leads them in the doxology. They bless the Lord in the presence of the whole assembly. What do they say? Yours is the greatness and the power and the glory and the kingdom. And so it was added, it was used in the liturgy of the church, and it is very appropriate for us to use it in the liturgy of the church. Very appropriate for us to pray back the word of God to God. And if you think about it, it makes perfect sense. If you begin the prayer with worship, the foundation of worship, our Father who art in heaven, doesn't it make perfect sense using scripture, interpreting scripture to go to other scriptures and to end the prayer with worship? A reminder after you've prayed for obedience and provision and bread and forgiveness and you've prayed for the needs of yourself and others to end, yours, not mine, is the kingdom. Yours, not mine, is the power. And yours, not mine, is the glory forever. So it begins and ends with worship. And perhaps nowhere clearly do we, clearer do we see it than in this passage in 1 Corinthians, at, excuse me, at the end of 1 Chronicles. Looking at my notes, I saw C. I got tongue-tied for a second. 1 Chronicles. I don't preach every week from 1 Chronicles. Today's text, if we look at it, scholars give you a little historical background and context here. Scholars are not completely sure who the writer of the Chronicles are, so most refer to him as the Chronicler. And what do they mean by that? Well, the Chronicler, as the title suggests, is chronicling Israel's history, the history of the people of God, and he's doing so for a reason. In this particular time in Israel's history, and this is why knowing the story of the Bible, the story of God, is so important. At this particular time in the history of Israel, they have just returned from their exile to Babylon. They have returned from their time where they were taken because of their sin, because of their idolatry, they were taken from the sanctuary of God, the temple of God, their homeland. And they were stripped and they were taken away to Babylon, and now God in his faithfulness is bringing them home, is rescuing them, is delivering them. And here's the chronicler. The purpose of this is he is now instructing, he's teaching the people of God from Israel's history different lessons, encouraging them with the priorities and the patterns of faithfulness that is expected of God's people. He is basically saying, let's learn from our past so we can live well so that we can live faithfully, not only in the present, but in the future. 
And so 1 Chronicles 29 is bringing to a close the end of the reign of King David. As a matter of fact, it's probably helpful to read 1 and 2 Chronicles together. Because as he says here at the end of 1 Chronicles, what is he doing? He's encouraging the people to pray for his son Solomon. As Vic read for us, Solomon is the one who's actually going to build the house of God, the temple of God, where God's name and God's eyes dwell forever. And the chronicler is basically saying here, what do we learn from David's time? This epic, this kind of peak, if you would, in Israel's history, what can we learn from David's time to help us in our time? And the answer to that question is that you can learn to live a God-centered life. He is pointing the people of God to live a God-absorbed, God-consumed, God-centered, God-focused, rather than man-centered and man-focused life. And he points it out in three ways. And guess what the three ways are? They correspond to the end of the Lord's Prayer. Your kingdom, your power, and your glory. And each one of those things also address a practical contemporary need of our lives and of our hearts. Your kingdom, addressing the question, what is it that we worship? Your power, addressing the question, what is your authority? And your glory, addressing the question, who gets the credit? What do we worship? What is your authority? And who gets the credit? Do you see how this passage begins and ends? This is, what do we worship? Look at verse 10. David blessed the Lord in the presence of the whole assembly. Now look at the end of the passage. Verse 20. Then David said to the whole assembly, bless the Lord your God. The beginning and the end enveloping this passage is God-centered worship. And it reveals something absolutely fundamental about human nature that gives here a doctrine of man, a doctrine of humanity. And that is, we are worshiping creatures. Worship is not an option. The question is, what and who do you worship? If you are human, you worship. Nobody is truly secular. That is a myth, that is an illusion. And I think Tim Keller gives the best, most simple definition of what worship is. He says, worship is the act of ascribing ultimate worth to something in a way that energizes your whole person. It is assigning ultimate value to something in a way that engages your entire being. It's assigning ultimate value so that it grips and engages your mind, your affections, your heart, your emotions, and your will. And of course, what Dr. Keller is so appropriate in pointing out is the fact that all of us are assigning ultimate value to something. The issue is what or who you worship. And this is why this is such a fitting summary, a fitting doxology to the entire prayer, to the entire Lord's Prayer. Just as you begin with worship, our Father who art in heaven, we ascribe ultimate value to you. You end the prayer with yours is the kingdom. We worship you. Yours is the power. You are real. You, are, you exist. It's your authority we come under. And you get all the credit. Yours is the glory. It also points out, and it's important, because whatever it is you worship, it's that which you serve. See, whatever it is you worship, you belong to. 
you give yourself to. All of us give ourselves to something. See, the very essence of worship is for you to recognize that your heart is always ascribing ultimate value to something. And the process of worship, this is kind of the process of sanctification, because worship is at the heart of our sanctification, learning to recognize what and who. I don't mean what and who we're confessing, but what and who we are functionally worshiping. See, this kind of gets to, see, you're all always, we're always functionally worshiping something. This is the heart of what Galatians 5 talks about when it says, I say to you, walk by the Spirit and you will not walk by the flesh. Notice what Paul says with the rest of Galatians 5. He says, the Spirit and the flesh, those two natures, the Spirit that brings glory to Christ, loves Christ, is totally God-centered, is warring against the flesh, which doesn't mean our skin and bones. It's that entity, that principle that is hostile to God, taking you away from God, drawing you away from God. So in other words, worshiping, ascribing ultimate value to something else. And Paul is saying, guess what? Here's what it means to be human and human as a Christian. See, if you're not a Christian, it's all flesh. If you're a Christian, guess what? You've got two principles, two natures, and they're at war with each other. That's why I often say tension is normal. If you're not experiencing tension, something is wrong. Tension is absolutely normal, which also means something practical to us. My Christian friends, you ought to be asking yourself every day, don't just assume you're worshiping Christ. Assume the flesh is hostile to worshiping Christ and is taking you away to worship Christ and is looking to ascribe ultimate value to something else. Might be what other people think of you. It might be being in charge. It might be always being right. It might be kind of being a little bit always having to have things your own way in control. But no matter what, we're ascribing ultimate value to something. Let me illustrate it this way. I don't know how many of you saw the Harry Potter movie. This is a dated illustration, but saw the Harry Potter movies or read the Harry Potter books or anything like that. But this comes out of the first Harry Potter book. And in the first Harry Potter book, there is a mirror. And the mirror is called Erised. E-R-I-S-E-D, and I spelled it out, and it's important because it's the word desire spelled backwards. And at one point, Harry comes upon this mirror, and Harry looks into the mirror, and to his amazement, he sees his parents. Now, why do I say to his amazement? Because Harry never knew his parents. His parents died when he was a small child. And so he never really knew them. But he's looking into the mirror, and what does he see? He sees his parents with loving eyes looking back at him. They're loving him. They're putting their hand upon his shoulder. And he is so excited. He's thinking, this is magic. This is amazing. And so he goes and he calls his best friend, Ron. Ron, you've got to come over and you've got to see this mirror. And he thinks that Ron's going to look in a mirror and Ron's going to see his parents. But instead, Ron says, I'm a sports champion. Captain of the team. Look at that. I'm a hero. And they can't figure it out. What is the mirror communicating? What is the mirror doing? And then Harry and Ron go to Harry's mentor, and Harry's mentor explains that the mirror shows you the deepest and most desperate desire of your heart. Because every single person has put their hope in something where they say, if I had that, 
If I could only get that, then my life would have connection and my life would have meaning and my life would have purpose and I will be happy. That which we ascribe ultimate value to is what we are functionally worshiping every day of our lives. Yours is the kingdom is pressing upon us to ask the question in your progressive sanctification, what is it you are worshiping? Be humble enough to not assume you are always worshiping Christ. Let me tell you something, you're not. Have the courage, the self-examination to ask yourself, what is it you are worshiping? For the Lord's prayer ends, yours is the kingdom. But then it goes on, yours is the power. Look with me at verse 11. And he says, yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. It is as if David is saying here, you, the Lord, are great. Not I or even Solomon are worth anything. Yours is the power. Yours is everything. And then he goes on to characterize what this power is like. He goes through these kingly attributes of God. He speaks of power, which speaks in that context of the power of a divine warrior. How appropriate the choir sang, the Lord is the strength of my life. I shall not be afraid. Why is that? Because he is a divine. Do you know what it means to be a Christian? It means you don't have to fight your battles anymore. You have a divine warrior who rides on war horses and comes down to fight your battles for his glory. How dare us say, but it's ours. I'll fight it myself. I can do it myself. Do we understand the utter arrogance to do that? David is confessing and he's professing, yours is the power. You have the power of a warrior. Glory is his ornamental magnificence. Think of the passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, where Paul is describing worship. And he, he says we're the aroma of Christ. But what is he saying? He is saying God is leading us in the victory parade. What is he picturing? He is picturing the resurrected, ascended, exalted, glorified Christ leading his people in a victory train where he is magnified in his ornamental magnificence and we are declaring his glory. And then, of course, the possession of the earth is the ambition of every king. And, of course, so what does he say in verse 11? It sums it all up, saying, everything in heaven and on earth is yours. This begs us to answer or ask ourselves, again, a self-examination question, a practical question. If yours is the power, what is it that has ultimate authority in your life? See, if it's not God and his word, it could be anything, including ourselves. What we might be saying, oh, that's our opinion, that's our interpretation, we have to remember what is our authority. Any wonder we have chaos with seven billion different authority figures on the earth? And we wonder, if that doesn't lead us to pray, by the way, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. I'm not sure what is going to get us to pray that. But it leads us to ask the question, what is your authority? Which leads us to our final point. How do you respond 
What, and this basically begs us to ask the practical question, who gets the credit? I remember reading a book many years ago by a PCA pastor, his name is Scotty Smith. The book was called The Reign of Grace, and he was dedicating it to a good friend of his who had passed away. And he said of this man, this was a man who didn't care who got the credit. And what a glorious, attractive life, a picture of holiness that is, when you genuinely don't care who gets the credit. Now look at this, in the context here, what is David doing? He is absolutely celebrating the response of the people. Because in the context, what do they do? They have just freely given of all their gifts in order to build the temple, the house of God, and to dedicate it to the glory of God. And their response could be summed up as one of grateful, sacrificial, humble generosity. And so if you look with me at verse 14, look at David's perspective, even towards their response. And look at what David is saying when he says, yours is the glory. He says, but who am I? And what is my people that we should be able thus to offer willingly? For all things come from you. And of your own have we given you. For we are strangers before you and sojourners as all our fathers were. Our days on the earth are like a shadow and there is no biding. O Lord, our God, all this abundance that we have provided for building you a house for your holy name comes from your hand and is all your own. David's perspective is so helpful for us here because not only does he acknowledge the abundance and the generosity of the people in giving for the temple, but even in their response, the perspective is God-centered. He says everything belongs to God. All wealth, all riches, all honor, all greatness, all power, all glory. With this perspective, there can be absolutely no self-importance or self-congratulations. I love how C.S. Lewis put it. He put it this way. He says, it's like a small child going to his father and saying, Daddy, could you please give me sixpence to buy you a birthday present? And of course, the father does and is pleased with the child's present. But he says, it is all very nice and proper, but only an idiot would think that the father is sixpence to the good in the transaction. Friends, even the reference in verse 15 to there being strangers and sojourners before God is striking. For the word sojourner and stranger that's used here is widely used in the Old Testament to distinguish Israelites from non-Israelites. The non-Israelites were the ones who were resident, living in the land, only by the goodwill of the rightful inhabitants applied here to Israel by David. David has taken this, and he says, of the people of God, you are strangers and you are sojourners before God. What is he saying? He's saying that all of life, every breath you take, who owns this earth? Who owns the air? Who owns everything, every gift? Who owns everything you have? It is all by the benevolence and the goodwill and the grace of God. How dare us think that we own this earth or we own this land or we own this country. It all belongs to God. We are the recipients of his benevolence and his grace. Friends, how do, can we live like this? How can we grow? How can we begin to flourish and grow living this kind of God centered life. We're not going to be able to kind of drum it up ourselves. We don't have the power to do this. Where do we get the power to 
Live out this kind of God-centered prayer that says yours is the kingdom, yours is the power, yours is the glory. Friends, look at Jesus. Look at the fulfillment of this prayer. In 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9, we read, For you know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then Paul gives what I think is one of the, if not the biggest, understatements in all of the Scripture. Because he says that though he was rich, that's another one of those statements that I want to go, uh, duh, though he was rich, didn't we just say he owns everything? See, I'm convinced we really don't know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. If we did know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, it would impact our perspective, our lives, and how we treat God and other people, love of God and love of neighbor. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes, and personalize this, meditate on what it cost him to do this for you. For your sake, he became poor. Though he was rich, though he owned everything, he looked out at you and he became poor so that you, not through his power, not through his being a divine warrior, not through his being God, but by through his emptying himself, his giving of himself, his poverty, you might become rich. And friends, it is only to the degree that you are massaging your soul with that and meditating upon you that you can begin to become God-centered saying, yours is the kingdom. I don't have to have what I want. It's not my kingdom. Yours is the power. I'm not the ultimate authority. And yours is the glory. I give you the credit. Let me close with this. Probably the best summary of how we ought to respond is summed up in the words of George Matheson's great hymn, O Love That Will Not Let Me Go. He writes, and we often sing, O love that will not let me go, I give thee back the life I owe, that in thine ocean depths its flow may richer, fuller be. O Father, may we see more and more the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for our sakes he became poor. Help us to see the degree and the depths to which he became poor, so that through his poverty, his birth in a feeding trough, his humble life, his being sent out into the wilderness, his living in a fallen world, his living in a fallen condition, though he who knew not any sin was treated as a sinner through his sacrificial, substitutionary death, through his poverty, we might become rich. Oh, that we would dwell on what it cost to Jesus so that we could grow in living lives of God-centeredness where we say, yours is the kingdom. I don't have to have my way. Yours is the power. I'm not the ultimate authority. God is. And yours is the glory forever and ever. Amen.